Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Bible Church Creekside. My name is Kyle Cox. And for those of you who haven't been here the last two weeks, a little bit about myself. For those of you who have, you know, you get the main gist so you can back out for the next couple minutes. Um, but my name is Kyle. I graduated from A&M in 2013. Um, good. All right. Y'all are back. Good. They were here last two weeks. I th- most of you, I think. We still need to hang out. Um, after graduating in 2013, um, I uh, came on staff as an intern here at Grace, and now it's called the Fellows Program, if you're familiar with the Fellows Program. Then I came on staff in our outreach department and have since moved overseas with my wife uh, to Greece as of last September, and we're currently down from Greece. We got back about three or four weeks ago, and we're here renewing our visas, saying hi to friends, family, and then we'll move back overseas come September. Um, And I got married a year and a half ago. This is my wife, Chamilla. Let me see if I can get there. There it is. Okay, there's my wife, Chamilla. Uh, It was once Chamilla Panilla, now Chamilla Cox, um, unfortunately for her. Um, And Chamilla and I, we celebrated our year and a half anniversary last week, which we can still do that because we're newlyweds. Uh, We can still do the six-month mark. Um, I'm sure some of you in the room are like 60 years married, and you're like, hey, you still do it. You do it every three months. Um, I would love to get dinner with you. So Chamilla and I, we... Uh, we, when we celebrated our first year anniversary, we went to London, and I don't know if you've ever been to London, but there's a lot of history in London. It's beautiful. I loved it. Uh, there's a lot of museums, and there's a lot of art museums, and I just, when it comes to art, I, I don't get it. Like, you know, you could put a pic- I can appreciate the Mona Lisa, but if you can put, like, most art in front of me and call it abstract, I'm just like, I don't see it. I don't get it. I don't get how you can put splotches on a painting and sell it for thousands of dollars. That's really cool that you can do that, but I don't get it. And I remember when we went to, or when we were in London, a friend came to us and wanted to go to a modern art museum. I had never been to a modern art museum. I didn't quite know what that meant, but I have some pictures I want to show you from this museum. So this, let me see, there we go. So this is a, what I would call a stick, um, but modern, (laughs) modern artists would call it art. Um, and I kid you not, the stick ran for about $1,000. Um, and it's not like it was an ancient Mayan stick. I mean, this was painted about two years ago. Two years ago, stick, $1,000. Uh, I don't get it. Whoever sells that, man, I want to meet them so I can do what they do. Um, and as we moved on, um, guys in the back, I think you are going to have to do manual. Thank you all. Um, as we moved on, here, as you can see, what I would call is a bunch of bricks um, however, the bricks also, they ran for upward to a couple thousand dollars. Uh, keep on going. Okay, so this, now, don't be deceived. This is actually a projector, projecting a, just a white screen onto a blank wall. Um, and that, to us, was, you know, to, that was art. Um, you can go to the next slide. Okay, so this is a good one. This is my favorite. Can you all turn up the volume? Thank you. Just listen to it for a second. Man, let that modern art just really resonate with you. (laughs) You feel it? You feel changed yet? All right, great. Um, Don't switch the slide yet. Let's leave this on while I talk about this because the music is really defining in me. Um, So I remember Chamilla and I, when we were in the museum, we started hearing this, I don't know, Gregorian chant. I don't know what you call that. Um, And we heard it and we saw this big dome and we were like, well, let's go check it out. So we go in and we see what we found out was stock market numbers from the market crash in 2008. And uh, yeah, modern art, there you go. All right, next slide. This is a urinal. Um, And as you can see, it's enclosed in in glass. 
And I remember we stood at this urinal for about 10 minutes, and I finally had enough. I was like, I got to ask someone if this is real. So I go to someone who works there, and I was like, in a, in a much kinder way, I was like, do y'all really believe this? Like, is this like, I mean, you're selling a urinal for $1,000. Is this like a scheme? First of all, can I get on it? Uh, and if it's not, like, do y'all believe what's happening here? And his response to me, it was pretty, it was funny. He said, what we offer is a different experience for the modern art goer. So we find that people are tired of the historical art. They're tired of what people view as normal art. And we offer something different. What we offer attracts people because it is art that is different. And he, I just had this facial expression of, I mean, he could tell it was like a disbelief of like, I'm just not buying it. And then his response to my facial expression, and it made a lot of sense, was, you're the one. This is him talking to me. He says, you're the one who spent $30 to come in here and look at a urinal for 10 minutes. (laughs) And I realized he's right. I mean, I'm the chump who's here. I'm the one who's looking at the urinal for 10 minutes. And you guys can go to the next slide. Um, But what I realized, what he said, there's a fundamental truth in it. I believe that, that whenever we do something different, it garners the world's attention. I mean, just look at pop culture, movies, they're kind of the same throughout the 2000s movies. We saw one movie and it was one story. And then something happened in 2008, a movie called Iron Man came out. And then from Iron Man spanned over like 30 other movies and people, they're getting something different that built up to this crazy movie with all the superheroes come like a month ago. And it's because people like and are attracted to what's different. And so why do I say that? I say that because for the Christian, when we live life differently than how the world expects, we also garner the world's attention. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to apply this truth to the reality of pain. And so what I want to do this morning, if y'all can go to the next slide, I want to illustrate that when we respond to pain, to tragedy, to suffering differently than how the world expects, we get the world's attention. The reality is um, pain is a constant in every one of our lives. It spans every culture, it spans every race, it spans every nation, every Republican, every Democrat, every conservative, every liberal, every libertarian, every Buddhist, every Hindu, every Muslim, every Christian, every atheist, every one of us will experience pain. It's a constant in every one of our lives. And C.S. Lewis writes in his book, A Grief Observed, if y'all can go to the next slide, um, he writes, we were promised suffering, they were part of the program. We were even told, blessed are those that mourn. And I accept that. I've got nothing that I hadn't bargained for. Of course, it is different when the thing and pain happens to oneself, not to others. And when pain happens in reality, not imagination. I think for many of us, we can identify with this quote. Because we can talk about pain. We can talk about tragedy. It's easy for me to get up here and talk about pain and tragedy. It's easy for us to look at life and acknowledge that it'll come. But when pain actually comes breaking through the door, when our world seems to crumble before us, the reality is we feel in that moment that there was nothing we could do to prepare for it. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look biblically How we, when pain comes crashing through the door, when our world seems to crumble below us, how we as Christians can redirect our pain towards a purpose. And so what we're doing this morning is we're going to look at the prophet Ezekiel. 
Ezekiel was familiar with pain. He lived a life of pain, and I want to see how he responds. Um, now, Ezekiel, it's a very strange book. Um, if I could put it to one word, it would be weird. It's just an odd book to understand and interpret. I would say out of the prophets, he's one of the more confusing and difficult books to understand and interpret. One filled with uh, prophecy and illustration. However, when we look at this book as a whole, when we look at the history surrounding the book, when we read this book as a whole, what we find is not a book indulged with prophetic illustration but one that is indulged and filled with hope, one that I believe speaks to us on a personal level. And so what I want to do is I want to try to do justice in our understanding of the book, but I think to do so, we need to understand history surrounding the book. So several hundred years before Ezekiel comes into the picture, you have King Solomon. And King Solomon, after his reign, the nation of Israel was split into two. You have the northern kingdom of Israel in blue and the southern kingdom of, Is of Judah in orange. And you can see in the orange, Jerusalem, there's a star. That's, that's what we're looking at this morning. This morning is really going to revolve around Jerusalem, more specifically the temple of God. And so there are three main prophets prophesying around this time. We have Jeremiah, we have Daniel, and we have Ezekiel. Jeremiah, he begins his ministry about 30 years before Ezekiel. And what, what Judah is doing is they are worshiping false idols. They are profaning the temple of God. Judah, they're looking to, um, to uh, Egypt, excuse me, Egypt for help and hope against their enemies and the rebelling against the Lord. So Jeremiah, he comes into the picture and he says, if you do not turn back to the Lord, what's going to happen is Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians are going to come from the east. They're going to ransack Jerusalem. They're going to destroy Judah and they're going to take back with them 10,000 exiles. And so what happens is Judah hears these words, and yet they don't respond to his, uh, they don't respond to his prophecy. They hear it, and they neglect it. So the inevitable comes, and if you guys can go to the next slide there, thank you guys. The inevitable comes, Babylon from the east comes into Jerusalem, they come into Judah, and they take with them 10,000 exiles. So the next prophet to be in Babylon around this time is Daniel. Daniel, if you're familiar with his story, he garners the uh, respect of King Nebuchadnezzar. At one point, he's thrown into a lion's den, comes out with 10 pet new cats. Uh, and then he uh, has visions that he interprets. And he is really directing his prophecy towards Babylon. Five years into Daniel's ministry, you have Ezekiel. And so Ezekiel, he at this point... He's living in Jerusalem. He's still in Judah. Ezekiel, he was not taken by Babylon into exile. Now, this is significant but because what we find out in Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 1, is that Ezekiel was actually called by God to go into exile. So Judah had been in exile for five years, and it's in Ezekiel chapter 2, 1, that we find that Ezekiel left the comfort of his home and went to exiles. He writes, and he said to me, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. I heard him speaking to me and he said to me, son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to the nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. So Ezekiel around 598 BC, he enters into exile. He's 25 years old at the time and he resides into 
<clears throat> excuse me, he resides into a city called Tel Abib. And Tel Abib actually means mound of deluge. It's near the Shabar River. And so it was notorious for flooding. It was notorious for inconsistent climates. Uh, Tel Abib, commentators say, was the most unlivable city in Babylon. And so that's where Ezekiel willingly settles because God calls him to settle there. We then see in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 17, uh, God says, Son of man, I have appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. So for five years, he lives as a priest in exiled Babylon, or in Babylon as an exile. And then five years into his ministry, God calls him here as a prophet. And what we'll see Ezekiel prophesy is the destruction, the future destruction of Jerusalem and the temple of God. So structurally speaking, this book is uh, broken down into three different parts. And our focus is going to be in chapters 1 through 24. And what we see here is this is before the destruction of Jerusalem. So Ezekiel, he is prophesying towards this destruction. This is judgment on Judah. And the second third of the book, chapters 25 through 32, this is around the time that Jerusalem is sieged. Uh, and this is judgment on surrounding uh, nations, partic uh, particularly Babylon and Assyria. Then we get to chapters 30 through 33 through 48, and this is after the siege of Jerusalem. And this is where we're going to finish. And in this cha these chapters, we see hope and restoration. Now, I want to give a quick illustration on what the temple of God in Jerusalem met for these exiles. You see, while Jerusalem stood still, while Jerusalem stood tall, and while the temple of God stood strong, these exiles in Babylon, they had hope. They thought as soon as Jerusalem crumbles, then we crumble. But as long as it stands tall, we have hope. And so my illustration to which some of you will think is kind of dumb and the rest of you will be like, yeah, is my illustration of Texas to America. So think of an invading army comes to America. If Texas stands strong, we all got a shot. We got a chance. But the second that Texas is defeated, well, then America is in a pretty bad situation. We're losing hope if we lose Texas. And that's the same way here. For these exiles, they have hope because Jerusalem stands strong. And so what these exiles did is they came to Babylon and they thought that their time here was going to be very short. They got complacent. They thought, though we are in Babylon, because Jerusalem stands, we will be gone very soon. We will be back home. And so God calls Ezekiel to a very specific ministry. He gives, it was to convince those in captivity that they were not secure. It was to shake them out of their lethargic lifestyle. See, as time goes on, Ezekiel will show in the first 24 chapters that hope begins to dwindle. And so Ezekiel, along with his message, God gives Ezekiel a methodology. It's using illustrations. Ezekiel was a man of illustration. And if you've like been to church like ever, then you know what an illustration is. It's what we do in the beginning of a sermon to make a point that'll stretch out through the rest of the talk. And Ezekiel, he does the same thing. He does these crazy, odd illustrations, and he does this to make a point that would lead up to chapter 24. So these illustrations, they start in chapter 4, and what he does is he draws this, uh, the city of Jerusalem on a stone. He sets up canopies and catapults. He sets up tents. He even builds a wall around this stone. 
Immediately, when the stone with Jerusalem is completely secure, he, like a crazy man, just starts attacking it. He goes crazy on it. He destroys the tents he set up. He destroys the wall. He destroys the catapults. And then ultimately, he destroys the stone. And what this prophetic illustration did was demonstrate the impending judgment upon the city of Jerusalem. Another time, Ezekiel, he lays on his side for 430 days, 390 on his right side, and then 440 on his left. And this illustrated the longevity of Judah's exile. Another time, Ezekiel, he was told to cook meat over human dung, as the NSAB so poetically puts it. And then Ezekiel asks God if he could actually cook the meat over cow dung, to which God graciously says yes. And this illustrates that the exiles living in Babylon would be eating uh, dirty food for the portion of their exile. And another time, Ezekiel, he cuts and he shaves his beard. A third of it he throws in the air and he starts cutting. Another third he burns and a third he puts in his pocket. And this represented the third of Judah that would be slain in Jerusalem, the third that would burn in the destruction of Jerusalem, and a third who would make it out alive. So uh, I like to think of these illustrations, and I think to myself, what if Matt, our teaching pastor, did any of these? Uh, <laughs> just a funny thought. Go tell him I said that. Um, so all of these Judean exiles, all that they had to do was repent. All that they had to do was turn from their idols, turn from their, go- uh, turn from their false gods. It's all they had to do. And yet illustration after illustration they decide to ignore Ezekiel as they have ignored Jerusalem. And this, is, this leads us to the pinnacle of Ezekiel's message, found in Ezekiel chapter 24, starting in verse 15. Ezekiel writes, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, behold, I am about to take from you the desire of your eyes with a blow, but you shall not mourn, and you shall not weep, and your tears shall not come. Groan silently, Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put your shoes on your feet and do not cover your mustache and do not eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning and in the evening my wife died. And in the morning I did as I was commanded and the people asked of me, will you not tell us what these things that you are doing mean for us? I think it's interesting to think of this prophet as lovingly married. Ezekiel, this prophet who some commentators even call the prophet of justice, this prophet who did strange and odd and even kind of gross illustrations, this prophet who prophesied judgment upon Jerusalem was also married to what scripture calls us the delight of his eyes. And yet God reveals here that the delight of his eyes will die. And Ezekiel, his life, if you think about it, it's already been marked by pain and suffering. He left the comfort of his home to live in a nation that destroyed his home. He ministered to exiles, his own people, and yet was disregarded and rejected. He sacrificed his time and even his body to perform illustration after illustration. He was a man without home. He was a man without friends. He was a man without comfort. And yet, despite All of this, this last word of judgment on Israel would by far be the most tragic, not for just Israel, not for just Judah, but also for Ezekiel, the tragic death of his wife. And what we see is despite the death of his wife, God commands Ezekiel not to mourn and not to weep. 
In fact, he commands Ezekiel, every command God gives Ezekiel is contrary to what a mourner would do in this time. Who, those who mourned would tear their clothes, and yet God instructs Ezekiel to bind his turban. Those who mourned would walk barefoot, and yet God instructs Ezekiel to leave his shoes on his feet. Those who mourned would cover their face and shave their mustache and their beard, and yet God tells Ezekiel to keep his face uncovered. The mourner would fast for a day, and then after that day, people would bring bread and food, and they would serve him, and yet God tells, this, tells Ezekiel to deny any bread. So the Lord instructs Ezekiel to deny any visible sign of mourning. He tells him he can groan and mourn silently, but as far as appearance goes, he tells him to act opposite and different than how a mourner would. You see, Ezekiel's unnatural response to death, it immediately grabs the attention of those in exile. His unorthodox conduct in light of his grief, it drew questions. See, at this point, Ezekiel's entire life had been a testimony to these exiles, and so they just conclude, why should this be any different? And what we find here is that when Ezekiel responded to pain and suffering differently than how the people around him expected, he got their attention. His response to pain got the attention of those surrounding him. And I read this, and I am struck by Ezekiel's obedience. I think it's significant to think that the vision and glory of God never left Ezekiel's eyes. How could Ezekiel respond this way? How could Ezekiel respond in obedience? Well, it's because the goodness and love of God compels us to respond in obedience even when we don't understand. And I'm not talking about a false sense of optimism. When pain happens to us, mourning is good. I think that is healthy even. So I'm not talking about a false sense of optimism, but what I'm talking about is a situation where we suffering can enable us to help other sufferers. Suffering enables us to help other suffering sufferers. That we would speak, speak in the midst of our inevitable suffering to showcase the hope that we have in a future reality where there is no pain, where there is no suffering a hope that is found in our relationship with Jesus made possible by faith through his life, death, and resurrection. Uh, This morning, how I want to illustrate this point is by a friend of Chamilla and I, one of our good friends. She's the worship uh, director here, Sarah Davidson, who I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with. Um, Sarah, I actually had to write down her symptoms, well, type in this iPad, um, because I just, I couldn't remember them all. But she writes, health issues started Christmas at the age of 14. She writes that it felt like growing pains at first, but then I got something like the flu. But additionally, my knees and my joints and my hands turned bright blue. I began coughing up blood. I was taken to the children's hospital in Dallas, and they couldn't find the root cause. I was taken to Scottish Rite Hospital, where I had to be seen monthly by a neurologist and a rheumatologist. We drove to Dallas each month until I graduated high school. Ultimate diagnosis, I'm going to butcher this word, fibromyalgia. Um, I was alone most of high school because I had to guard my immune system. If I was around people, I would end up sick because of my low immunity. I currently live in daily pain. I have severe joint and muscular pain, insomnia and headaches, migraines and fatigue, continuous and mysterious infections, 
scarlet fever, cat scratch fever, multi-drug resistant bacterial infection that nearly took my life on multiple occasions, a year of severe and constant sinus infections, a year of severe bladder infections, all without causes. Excuse me. I took a semester off of college because of my sickness. I've been diagnosed also with Lyme's disease and lupus. My symptoms remain the same. Every day is painful, and every day I have to push myself to get up, do what is before me, and make, and make it to bed. This last year, uh, I had a high potential for cancer. The shape and size of tumors within me both were common of pelvic cancer. I also had a, <clears throat> excuse me, there was also a possibility of ovarian cancer, and so the oncologists and the doctors felt quite serious quite certain we were dealing with ovarian and pelvic cancer. Along with that, I had several cysts inside of me. So that's, that brings us up to date with Sarah. And I, in the last couple months, Jamila and I, as we lived overseas, we spoke often with her and we spoke before her surgery. And um, I look at this picture here. This was right before her surgery. I mean, this was minutes before her surgery and her husband, Sean, took it. And I need you to know that this, she didn't pose for this. This was taken just naturally in conversation. And what I love about this picture is you can tell, yes, that she is in pain, that she is exhausted, but you can tell that she has hope and that she has joy despite the pain, despite the real possibility of cancer. Though she mourned and though we mourned with her, she still had hope and she still had joy. If y'all go to the next slide. This is Sarah post-surgery. She did pose for this. Um, but you can see she's on her walker, and you can see that she's just smiling despite pain, despite moving slowly and inching slowly, despite pain. She has hope and she has joy. And what we've seen, what Chamilla, my wife, and I have seen in Sarah is that she is an inspiration to us, and she is a witness to others. I saw this firsthand when I was in Greece, one of the last months I was in Greece, talking to one of my Greek friends, a guy named Lazarus, as he was dealing with health issues. I showed him this picture of Sarah. I explained to him her story, and that was the first time he has ever seen pain redirected toward purpose and hope. This is why I believe that God uses our pain, our tragedy, and our suffering to expose hope in a future reality, and even more importantly, a hope that is made possible through relationship with Jesus Christ. We can have hope in the midst of our pain. So Ezekiel continues in verse 20. He answers uh, the Judeans, and he says, Then I said to them, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Speak to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am about to profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the desire of your eyes, the delight of your soul. And your sons and your daughters whom you have left behind will fall by the sword. Excuse me. You will do as I have done. You will not cover your mustache and you will not eat the bread of men. Your turbans will be on your heads and your shoes on your feet. You will not mourn and you will not weep. But you will rot away in your iniquities, and you will groan to one another. Thus Ezekiel will be assigned to you according to all that he has done, you will do. When it comes, then you will know that I am the Lord God. So in verse 19, they start asking Ezekiel what this means for us. And Ezekiel's response is that we discover here that the pride of their power, the temple of God, would be destroyed. Jerusalem would be destroyed. Their family would fall by the sword. All hope would be lost. The temple would essentially die as Ezekiel's wife died. 
And this catastrophe of the temple and Jerusalem would send these exiles into shock and panic as the last thread of hope they held on to completely was destroyed. Now, I was thinking about this. I thought, what if I ended there? Like, what if we ended that verse and I said, this catastrophe would draw them to shock and panic. Y'all have a great morning. God bless you. And then just like walked off the stage. Like, that, that'd be pretty depressing. And as I was reading this at first, I thought, this seems pretty depressing. Like, where's the hope? And as I kept reading it, it jumped out of me. And I thought to myself, how did I miss it? How did I miss it? Hope is found in verse 24 and 27. It's when God says, and they will know that I am the Lord God. You see, what this tragedy would do, it would cause the exiles to finally acknowledge their Lord. And God, when he says this, he's not saying this with malice. He's not being malicious here. No, this is actually an act of love because what God is doing here, he is saying, I can finally, I will finally take away all the hope you have placed in finite and worldly things and I will redirect your hope to me, the only hope that sustains and the only hope that lasts. You see, what would have been unloving for God to do was to just let them live with sin, but because he is a God who loves his people, that is not what he did. He took away all their hope so they would redirect it back to him so that they would know who their God is, so that they would know who their Lord is. And this is the thread of hope that we see throughout the book of Ezekiel. It's that amidst of all these prophecies of impending destruction, there is hope that they would know their Lord God. At the end of chapter 24, this is really a pivot point in the book of Ezekiel structurally. Because at this point, the hope in these finite things is gone. And Ezekiel, he, he lays off Judah for a little bit. He turns his attention to Assyria and Babylon. And he basically tells them that they won't get away for destroying, the, destroying and hurting God's people. And then we end with chapters 33 through 48. And what we see here is the restoration of the temple back to its original intent and the restoration of God's people back to their original intent. You see, we see that there is a future coming when the temple will be completely restored and it will be used for its original intent. And this future restored nation, it couldn't take shape until the old had gone. It couldn't take shape until they stopped rebelling against the Lord and putting their hope and loyalty in false idols. And so Judah, yes, they will be judged because they have sinned, but God will not leave them there hopeless. He will come back for them. And then we see in chapter 36, verse 25 through 27, Ezekiel writes through the mouthpiece of God, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean and I will cleanse you from your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. We call this the new covenant. And what we have under this new covenant is that we are no longer under the law, but we are under grace. And this grace is found possible through Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life, who died a brutal death on the cross and then rose from the grave three days later, effectively conquering sin once and for all, that if we place our faith in him, we will have relationship with the Father. We no longer need the law. We no longer need what these, needed what these Judeans tried to strive for in being perfected by the law. 
He says he will put his spirit within us, the indwelling spirit, the Holy Spirit. You see, there is hope in a future made possible by Jesus Christ. And then he ends it with chapter 37, verse 27. He says, my dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. God has not forgotten his people and their pain. And the reality is what we want you to know is that God has not forgotten you either in your pain. How do we handle and respond to pain? There are many resources that I think we should utilize. There are many people I think we should talk to, but one of the first things I think we should do is look to Jesus. Jesus who was mocked, who was spit at, who was cursed at, who wore a crown of thorns, who was beat, who was whipped, who was scourged, who was nailed to a cross and yet didn't fight back And yet his response was different than how the world expected. And because of this, because of his death and his resurrection, this response made possible salvation and relationship through the Father. And so for us, this is how we can showcase hope and tragedy. This is how we can respond differently than how the world expects, because we have hope. This is why... Elizabeth Elliot, when her husband went to Ecuador and died by the hands of a tribe, this is how she could respond differently than how the world expects, move to that tribe and minister to them, and we see them come to know Jesus. This is how Nabil Qureshi, when he was told he had stomach cancer and had a year and a half to live, this is how he could claim that God is good. And even more so, this is how his wife can continue to proclaim that because she believes that God is good despite tragedy because there is hope. This is why Horatio Spafford, who we just sang his song, it is well. This is why he could write that song after the death of his entire family on a shipwreck to Europe because he knew he had hope and peace made possible through Jesus. This is why Ashley Pate, who works on staff here at Grace Bible Church, though her mother died tragically three years ago, this is why she can sit down with other college girls and say that God is good despite the similar situation that they're in, and she has seen people come to know him. This is why we can respond differently. And so to finish off, um, I have a quote by our teaching pastor, Matt Morton, that he wrote in a blog about four years ago. He wrote, we can panic or we can trust, we can pretend we are in control, or we can grab a hold of the hand of the God who is. The one who conquered death will not abandon his people. The one who defeated hell itself will eventually resolve every crisis and wipe away every tear. He never leaves us. He never loses. We have hope and pain made possible through Jesus. In our pain, our ears are tuned toward the voice of God in ways we have never heard. And so to finish, um, we want you to know that Grace Bible Church cares for you. And so this morning, we have uh, our care pastor's email on the screen, um, Chris Thompson at gracebiblechurch.com. He was once our uh, Grace Creekside campus pastor and now serves as our care pastor. Um, We just want you to know, because Grace cares for you, that if you are experiencing pain or tragedy of any sorts, we want you to feel freedom to please email him. And so guys in the back, maybe we can leave this slide on after the service for like five minutes, just so if you need to write down his email, take a picture of it. We just want to provide resources for you. Chris Thompson would love to listen to you and provide resources. We just want you to know that we care first and foremost. And lastly, for those of you in the room who hear this and perhaps you have not 
place your faith in Jesus, my hope this morning is that you would know that you are loved deeply by a Savior who willingly, who gladly gave his life so that you can have relationship with the Father. And my hope is this morning that you would come to know him, that you would come to have relationship with him. So let's spend time praying to the God who loves us and who we place our complete hope in. God, we thank you that you are a God who empathizes with us, a God who, when we are in pain, that you, you feel that. You know we're in pain and you mourn with us. We thank you. You are a God who, uh, who is in relationship with us. You are a God who understands. We thank you for Jesus who can, we can confidently know, experience pain in such a way that the world would have salvation because of it. God, we recognize that you are a good God. And so, Father, um, we pray for peace of mind. We pray that we could sing it as well and mean it. God, I pray for those in the room who are in pain and tragedy. I pray um, that you would provide resources. Um, I pray that uh, Chris could hear them and provide resources. We pray and acknowledge that you are a good Father who loves his children. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, that's all I have for you this morning. Um, this is actually my last week here. The last three weeks have been great. Thank you, guys. I've loved meeting those of you who have introduced themselves to me. Um, it has really been my pleasure. Next week, Dusty Davis, our campus pastor here, will be preaching. And so other than that, you guys have a great week, and we'll see you here next week.